Morning, family. How many of you were up early enough this morning to start feeling like it's the seasons are turning? Hey, it's it's beginning to happen. I trust that you have with me been enjoying our time in the book of John and as we continue and uh, particularly as we're working our way towards Easter, uh, we're starting to come towards that point where now the crucifixion is beginning to dominate the story as we are reading through the book of John. Today we're going to, as Ben said, go to John 7. So it would be wonderful if you want to turn there uh, in your Bible or, or just scroll there on your device. How many of you know that the context of an event often adds meaning to an event. The place it happens and the times it happens can add a lot of meaning to something that may be in any other context be quite normal or quite everyday. It's like if I tell you the story about Natasha's favorite cup of coffee, the best cup of coffee she's ever had. Now, you may think if I say, want to tell you the story about the best cup of coffee she's ever had, that it may be about some coffee shop or it may be about some you know, place that she went to where they had just perfected the art of making coffee. But because of the context of the story, it changes the meaning of it. Her best cup of coffee now, Natasha loves coffee. Sometimes I think a little too much. But she's not here, so she cannot defend herself. <laughs> But I think sometimes a little too much. I don't drink coffee, if, if most of you would know that about me. I believe real men drink tea. <laughs> Anybody want to support me in that? Uh... Thank you, ladies, for supporting me in that uh, statement that real men drink tea. But she loves coffee. Her best cup of coffee took place in a rather unexpected time and space. She was in Burundi with some others on a ministry trip. And uh, they were taken up and they spent some time up in the mountains of Burundi. And um, she was longing for coffee. As one does, that is a coffeeholic. She was looking for some coffee. And so she just happened to mention that oh, she would so love a cup of coffee. And the local people said to her, don't worry, we're going to organize you a cup of coffee. And so what happened was they went to a tree in the vicinity and picked some beans from the tree. Then took that to a man, a quite elderly gentleman, that proceeded to do the process of preparing these coffee beans and roasting them on an open fire. After he had done the roasting of the beans, he then took it and ground it with a stone. He took those groundings and he poured it into a regular pot, not a kettle, just a pot, with some boiling water, and he proceeded to make coffee. Eventually, he took this coffee and he just took a cup and he poured it like this into this cup and then gave it to her and to others that were with her. This is the best cup of coffee she's ever had, she says. She'll tell you that story. I don't know if it had to do with the fact that it was so fresh from the tree to her cup. It took about three hours, by the way, to make this cup of coffee. And that's why she only had one, because she felt too bad to ask for another one <laughs> ever again. But what really, I think, made it so special was the taste, the freshness, the everything, but it was the care that somebody took. It wasn't just going into a Starbucks and saying, this is my selection, and five minutes later, with your name written on it, there's a cup. This was somebody sitting, taking care to make her 
her best cup of coffee. How many of you know that the environment of a story often adds meaning to a story? And that's exactly what we're going to experience today as we go to John chapter 5. For the story of John chapter 5 to have meaning or the type of meaning it's supposed to have for us, we have to understand the context. We have to read the coded language that is given to us in this story. Let's begin. John chapter 7 verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. John is setting us up for a very important event that is going to happen in the ministry of Jesus. He's telling us that at the time of the story beginning, Jesus is in Galilee. At the, and at that moment, as he's in Galilee, the people are getting ready for one of the three major festivals of the Jewish calendar, the Feast of Tabernacles. His brothers, and we think this really means his actual brothers, that were part of his disciples and that his disciples, his friends, they came to him, some of them, and they acted like his PR company. And they said to him, Jesus, you've been here in Galilee. There's not a lot happening here that is going to change the world. This is, this is small town. This is village. If you want to build your ministry, if you want to become a successful public figure, you need to go down to Judea. You need to go to Jerusalem where things are happening. You need to be seen in Jerusalem. That's the crowd that matters. Those are the people that matters. And there's no greater time than the Feast of Tabernacles because if you go down, you don't have to go looking for people. They're all going to be there. So that's a great time to be noticed, to build your ministry. I don't know when they opened up a PR company, but they are like, man, they, you know. And it's this little portion at the end because even his brothers did not believe and you can add the word yet there. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. They believed that he was an important person. They believed that, that he was the teacher. They believed that he, that he had some godly anointing on him. But they didn't quite yet believe that he was the Messiah. That's why the title of today's message is Believing in Christ. In terms of our journey of more fruit, everything hinges on believing and believing correctly about Jesus. And so they're in Galilee. They've been in Galilee for about six months now. The previous time that Jesus was in Jerusalem down in Judea, we read about a couple of weeks ago when we spoke in John 5 about the miracle. Remember the miracle that Jesus did where he healed the lame man and he said to him, take up your bed and walk. That's the last time, about six months before that, that Jesus was in Jerusalem. At another festival, another important occasion in the life of Israel, and that was the Passover festival that he was in that vicinity. Now he's in Galilee. The reason he's in Galilee is because the conflict had started building around him. And the, the crowd was starting to notice him and the leaders, the Jewish leaders, and remember in John, in John 5, yes, it said they started persecuting him. And so he withdrew. Did he withdraw because he was afraid of persecution? No, he was managing the time. 
Remember I said to you when Jesus' mother came to him in John 2 at the, at the miracle at Canaan where he turned the water into wine and she came to him and said, Jesus, why don't you help these people? And he said, my time had not yet come. That Jesus was very aware of the cross and the crucifixion and that he was on a schedule working towards the crucifixion. And he knew the moment he started his public ministry, the first public miracle that he did would begin a timer. It's like, like a kitchen timer. You know those when you turn the clock and it starts running down. Jesus knew the moment he did that miracle in Cana, the clock starts ticking. And so he's in a stage now where he's managing the time. He's very aware the crucifixion's got to happen and it's going to happen. But it needs to happen at the right time, in the right place, and with the right build-up towards it. And so he's managing the time. So he knows that while he's in Galilee, time is slowing down a little bit. Because he's not in the heat. He's not there where the religious leaders can see him and the conflict can grow and rise. He's just withdrawing in Galilee. But his brothers say to him, come on, let's go down to Jerusalem. And, he's, and he says to them, if you read this chapter further, he says, no, my hour has not yet come. I'm not going to go down. Because he knows the moment he steps into Judea and Jerusalem, the clock starts picking up again. And the crucifixion's coming cl closer. And so he's managing the time. So he says to his brothers, no, you go down to Judea. I'm not going to go. And so off they go. The story carries on and it tells us that a little while later, he went down by himself. I don't know how he just covered himself or something, but in quite a clandestine mode, he goes down to Jerusalem. And he goes and he just observes. He doesn't engage publicly. He doesn't talk to people really. He's just sort of in the background. Nobody notices that Jesus is there. But as the time of the festival goes on, I don't know why. I'm, I'm trying to fill this in my own blank. So this is not the Bible. This is not correct. But I think as he was observing this, the symbols and the symbolism of, the, of this week of, tab, of the Feast of Tabernacles, it started stirring within him and he realized, I have to make use of this opportunity. And, and at some point, Jesus begins to publicly participate and he begins to speak and teach. And this draws attention to him. The crowds go, oh yes, that's him. And some start saying, he is the Messiah. And some says, no, he's not the Messiah. And the, and the conflict builds and the tension builds for Jesus. So Jesus was in Galilee and now he's in Judea. For us to understand the meaning of the story, we have to understand a few contextual things. Of which the first is we have to understand the difference between Galilee and Judea. Now, if you know the map of, of Israel... You have that section, if you look at the map, um, on the left you will have the Mediterranean Sea and on the right you'll have the Jordan River. And, and that's not the whole of Israel, but there's sort of a piece of land which covers most of Israel and particularly of the time. And that portion of land you can divide into three sections. At the bottom section, the most southerly section is Judea with the capital Jerusalem. It was the, it was the seat of political, religious and social power of the day. Everything noteworthy happened in that area. Then in the middle, you had Samaria, where the Samaritans lived. Where in John 4, for instance, it says, and Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Because if you're going from the south, Judea, towards the north, where Galilee is the third section here at the top, in the middle is Samaria, you have to pass through Samaria. Which was a great discomfort for the Jews in many ways. 
And then up in the north here, you had Galilee. Around the Sea of Galilee. A much more village-type atmosphere. Whereas the south was the city, you could say the north was the village. It was the Platteland. It was the rural areas. Where the, where the subsistence people lived, that fished and agriculture took place, a lot of it. And so this difference between the two plays off in the life of Jesus. There were some key differences that I want to highlight between Galileans and Judeans of the time. First of all, they were different racially slightly. The, the, the people that were living in Galilee was a much more mixed race than the people living in Judea. They were considered that the people in Judea were the, were the more pure Jews as where the people of Galilee were a bit, a bit of a mixed breed. Because since the 8th century before Christ, when, when they were conquered by the Assyrians, they became much more mixed and they were living in a space and in a time where they were closer to Gentiles. Also geographically, they were closer to Gentiles. So they were much more influenced by the Gentile world. So a Galilean was therefore treated as a little bit less than because they were racially a bit more integrated and mixed. You had great Galilean towns like Nazareth mixed with cities like Tiberias and Sepphoris, Greek cities, and they were quite mingled. Not only were they different racially, they were different culturally. The Judeas despised their northern neighbors as country cousins. Their lack of Jewish sophistication being compounded by their greater openness to Greek influence made them just culturally less than, subpar. You didn't expect from a Galilean to find that which is the best of Jewish culture. They were sort of, just excuse the Galileans. They were not only different racially and culturally, they were different linguistically. Galileans spoke a distinctive form of Aramaic whose slovenly consonants, that means they dropped their consonants, they were lazy in their speaking. They just didn't pronounce things properly. Their, their accent was often the butt of Judean, of Judean, Judean humor at the time. They were often spoke about how flat their speech was, how unimaginative, how just wasn't good speaking. And so if you were a Judean, you recognized the Galilean immediately. Their speech was just so much more coarse. These fishermen didn't speak the Queen's English. They spoke a little bit flatter, closer to the floor with some choice words that were thrown in there all the time. They were embarrassing to their Judean counterparts. Not only were they different racially, culturally, and linguistically, they were different religiously. The Judean opinion was that the Galileans were lax in their observance of proper ritual. And the problem was exacerbated by the distance of Galilee from the temple and the theological leadership which was focused in Jerusalem. So they were sort of seen as, they're not the great example of what it means to be a Jew. Because they don't observe the Jewish rites and festivals as they should. They, they're out there in the boonies. They're out there in the bundus. They, they do what they can, but it's, it's not quite right. It's not, it's not pure. It's not, it's not just, you know, it's just not good enough. And so any person from Galilee that would go down into Jerusalem for a festival would stick out. They would never quite be comfortable. 
There may even be undertones of that's why some of these families couldn't find accommodation in Jerusalem because they, you didn't quite want a Galilean to live in your nice house that you put on booking.com and said available during the Feast of Tabernacles for booking. You always asked, where do you come from? And check by the address. And if they were Galileans, you were like, I don't know if I want those people. They're going to mess up my place. And so there was this tension. Now Jesus, where did Jesus come from? Jesus was a Galilean. He spoke probably with a Galilean accent. He, he came from that whole area. Because he was known as Jesus from Nazareth. So he was, a, he was a person that, you didn't, a Jewish person from Judea, by definition when Jesus opened his mouth, looked down upon him. And didn't expect much from him. And so were many of his disciples from that area. It is into this context that we have to understand the Feast of Tabernacles is taking place. Jesus has escaped to Galilee. He's safer there. Now he moves down to Jerusalem and Judea, which is already culturally, racially, linguistically, religiously not a comfortable spot for him. And now you add to it that the crowd is starting to murmur about him. And this is getting the attention of the religious leaders. And they are picking up. They've got a problem. They've got to do something about and so Jesus slips into the Feast of Tabernacles quietly, just going around the area. And then, like I said, he begins to talk publicly. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles, there's a few things that I, we need to understand. If you're going to understand why this is the best cup of coffee you're ever going to have, you need to understand a bit of the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. Let me ask just three questions about the Feast of Tabernacles. Why, when did it happen? Why did it happen? And how did it happen? The when is very important in terms of the context. The Feast of Tabernacles happened in what was the northern hemisphere's autumn. Remember, they are opposite to us. So actually, meteorologically, what we are going into right now in our climate and what we are coming out of is what they would be experiencing at this time of the year, September, October. They've had a long winter. It hasn't rained properly for about six months. It's dry. You know how we, our country gets by the end of you know, September. It's dry. Everything is just not nice and looking. It's dusty. That's that area. It's, it's just, it hasn't rained. It's starting to cool down again. The winter is coming. But it's also the time of the harvest where they were harvesting the grapes and the orange trees, for instance, and other citrus kind of fruit particularly. It was the harvest time for that. So the Feast of Tabernacles was not only a time of religious significance, it was a time also that had significance around economy and it had significance around agriculture particularly. There were three festivals in the Jewish calendar that were their main festivals that were all about agricultural events. They were tied in with agricultural events. The, 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 the Feast of the Passover was six months before this in, in March, April. It was the beginning of the rainy season and it was the harvest time of the grain. The Feast of Tabernacles at the end of the winter, beginning of, uh, at the end of spring, beginning of winter, the harvest of the, of the fruit. And then you had seven weeks after the Feast of Tabernacles, you had Pentecost. 
which was when the, 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 there was a, a big agricultural sense of now it's raining. The outpouring is happening. And it's so in this event, this time, that John is talking to us about. It's the end of the dry season. It hasn't rained. There's a crying out for rain. There's a thirst in the land. There's a desire for rain. There's a thankfulness for the harvest of the grape and the citrus that has happened. But there's an expectation and a hope for more. This is when it happened. And part of the reasons why it happened also. It had agricultural reasons, as I've explained to you. It had climate reasons. The climate reasons were not only that it was drought, also what was happening at that time of the year is that the day and nights were beginning to switch around in length. The people of that time, remember, they lived in a world that we are getting far and more, more familiar with as South Africans, where you don't have power at night. You don't have electricity sometimes at night. So the, the, the moment the seasons began to change in this time of the year, what was happening is the days were getting shorter and the nights were getting longer. And the Feast of Tabernacles actually happened around the autumn equinox when the days and the nights were equal in length. But from that time on, the people were aware. Now the darkness is coming. They spoke about it like that. The darkness is coming. The nights were going to get longer. Remember the Bible says you can work while it's yet day. Because they couldn't work at night. So the moment now they're starting to enter into a place of greater darkness. So they were very aware of drought. And they were very aware of darkness. At that time. It was also a religiously important festival. Not only did it have this agricultural meaning to it. Not only did it have climatic reasons of the climate. It also had religious reasons. Because the Feast of Tabernacles is where they remembered their 40 years of wandering through the desert. It's how they remembered that time when God sustained them. When they were going through the times of hunger and drought in the desert. God sustained them and they remembered this. So this is the when and the why and the how. How did they do the Feast of Tabernacles? There were three things that I want to highlight particularly that were very important symbolically. The first one is to remember God's provision through the time of the Exodus and also to protect the current harvest. They did a thing that they called the booths. That's why this was also sometimes called the Feast of Booths. They made these little temporary shelters because what the farmers had to do is now you've got all the fruit, the grapes and the citrus and whatever they've harvested, they've got to protect that. They didn't have cold rooms, they didn't have fridges, they didn't have pesticide. So what they did is right there in the fields, the farmers would build these little temporary shelters out of branches and they would cover the, the harvest within that until they could take it to market. And it would protect them. So all over the countryside you would see these little, little like stick booths that were built to protect the harvest. Those booths also reminded them of their temporary shelters when they were going through the desert for 40 years. And they were living in these temporary shelters, these tents, these little shelters that they would make on their journey all the time. It reminded them of that and it reminded them of how God covered them and protected them and looked after them through the... So the booths were first of all very important symbolically. 
The second symbolism that was important during the time was around lights. Because the darkness is coming, the days are getting shorter, what they would do is they would set up more lights than at any other festival during the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. For instance, they would, in the court, one of the courtyards of the temple, they would set up these six big pillars with, with golden bowls on top of them and fill them with oil, and these would burn throughout the, the festival. So that the temple actually became this bright city on a hill almost, that analogy. It became this very visible, clear in the darkness that there's the temple. There's our hope. There's the light. The light of the world is there. We've got to go there. And then the third thing, which was actually the most important symbolism, was around water. And I'll tell you about that a little later. But the use of water during that time and specific rituals with water, living, cleansing water became very important. So this is the context. So it's into this context of the Feast of Tabernacles where Jesus steps in and he begins to talk and he begins to draw attention. And first of all, what we see is as he speaks, as he teaches, the crowd begins to respond and they begin to argue among themselves. Is he the Messiah or is he not the Messiah? They're trying to figure out, how do I deal with this guy? What do I do? Do I believe in him or don't I believe in him? And the crowd was split. Some were saying, yes, he is. Some were saying, no, he isn't. And they're trying to figure out. And so they used a bit of a matrix of decision-making to try and discern, is he the Messiah? Can he be trusted or can't he be trusted? And this pattern that they used was very common and about, the, about people of the time, but it's still very applicable to us today. They asked three questions about Jesus. And if you read the rest of John 7, you will see them ask these three questions about Jesus and how Jesus responds to these three questions. The three questions are, where were you educated? Do you think that's a relevant question today still? Because your authority comes from your education. I'll explain that now. Where were you educated? Where did you go to school? Where are you from? Where did you come from? And that had great significance for them. And where are you going? Jesus had to answer these three things to them. And based on his answer to those three things, they would then determine, are you the Messiah or not? So let's go to the first one. Where were you educated? Now, Jesus had the same answer for all three questions, as he typically does. He had one answer for all three questions. His answer was heaven from my father. Where were you educated? In heaven with my father. Where did you come from? From heaven from my father. Where are you going? To heaven to my father. Those are his three answers. But that didn't fit into their religious understanding and narrative, as Neil spoke so wonderfully about last week. That didn't quite sit well with them. But those were Jesus' answers. They expected some other answers based on their belief system. Where did Jesus go to school? They ask in John 7 verse 15. You see, education in the time is what was seen to give authority. Much as it is in our time, but they had a particular view on it, particularly for the rabbis. You see, a rabbi's authority was not in himself. It was not inherent authority that a rabbi ever had. And remember, I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago when I did those triangles of authority. And a, a rabbi's authority came from who his rabbi was. They had a line that they drew for rabbinic authority. And that line started with Moses. Moses was seen to be the first rabbi. The first teacher of the law was Moses because he gave the Ten Commandments. 
and he gave the instructions. So Moses was the first rabbi. Every rabbi that was, had to stand in that authority after Moses had to draw their, their line of education back to Moses. So the idea was this. Moses taught Joshua. Joshua taught the next, the next taught the next, the next taught the next, the next. And so if I became, wanted to be a rabbi, I had to come and stand in that line of authority. As long as I was in that line, I had authority and could be seen as a rabbi. So that was why the question is, where did you get your education? Can you prove that you are in the rabbinic line of authority? The Hebrew word for that is reshuth. What is your reshuth? What is your education, your reshuth? If you cannot prove that you are in the line of the, of the reshuth of Moses, you cannot be an authority. Because Moses was their highest authority. Moses was their greatest representative of God. He was the one that led the Jewish people out of the captivity. And the expectation was that the new Messiah will come and he will have the authority of Moses. To do the same, remember we spoke about that? To set the, the Israelites free from their oppression. So Jesus, where's your reshuth? And Jesus says, Moses is not my origin of my education. My father is the origin of my education. And his authority, by the way, is far greater than Moses's. But if you cannot recognize that I was educated by the father in heaven... Remember now, we're not separating Jesus from God. This is, we have to keep this right. It's Trinity. He's not underneath the Father. He's one with the Father. But he's saying, that was my school. That's my authority. It comes from heaven. And this is already difficult for them to believe. So that's why they're arguing. But no. And remember, it often is said that when Jesus spoke, the crowd would go, wow, he speaks as one with authority. He, they would listen to him and go, wow, he speaks as an educated man. And then they start asking the questions about where does his education come from? And they can't find it. And it puzzles them. They're like, how can he speak with such authority? Even at a 12-year-old boy, the, 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 the teachers of the law were fascinated by the authority this young man spoke with. We know why he could speak with such authority. Because he was from heaven. But they were looking for who his rabbi was. That gave him such authority and couldn't find any. So that became the first controversial point around Jesus. He couldn't answer the question the way they wanted. The second thing is, where is he from? You see, they had a belief system. Half of the crowd believed that if the Messiah was to come, you won't know where he comes from. He will just appear. He will be obviously just a heavenly person that appears from nowhere and he will just come onto the scene and you will not be able to trace his origin and that's how you will know he's the Messiah. Some believe that. Others believe that the Messiah will have to come because of the prophecies of the Old Testament from the Judean area and probably around Jerusalem, probably possibly Bethlehem. So where does he come from? Half the crowd says, we know where he comes from. Or no, the whole crowd says, we know where he comes from. And therefore, he can't be the Messiah. Because half says, we know he comes from Nazareth. And because he comes from Nazareth, that means we know where he's coming from. He can't be the Messiah. The other half said, no, he comes from Nazareth. And because Nazareth is in Galilee, he cannot be the Messiah. And so they disqualify Jesus. 
And you'll see later, this is the argument the Pharisees used to say, he cannot be the Messiah because he doesn't come from the right place. He doesn't come from the right people. He doesn't come from the right community. He doesn't come from the right space. He cannot be the Messiah. The Messiah cannot speak with a Galilean accent. The Messiah cannot be from those people. He can't be the Messiah. So where does he come from? And then the last question is, where is this man going? Because Jesus said to them in, in John 7 verse 34, where I'm going, you can't go with me. And then they'd like, where is he going that we can't go with him? Perhaps he's going to live among the Greeks, amongst the Jewish people that, are, that have been far spread out and that are now living with the Greeks. And, and perhaps he's going to go there and live with them far away from here. And if he does that, he can't be the Messiah because the Messiah cannot live amongst the Gentiles. He has to live here in Jerusalem. And, and, and the sort of subtext to that question of where he's going is ultimately where is he supposed to go? He's supposed to go to the throne to be the king of the Jews. That's ultimately what he's supposed to do. And Jesus says, no, where I'm going, you can't come. Because where's Jesus going? He's going to heaven. He's going back to his father. He's not going to take up some earthly seat of authority. He's going to sit at the right hand of the father to rule and reign forever. But, and the only way you can get there is with him. You can't go there without him. So he says, you can't go where I'm going. So the controversy is growing around Jesus. And as we read through the scripture, the conflict increases. First of all, the crowd's divided. And as the crowd gets all hyped up, then the Pharisees gets involved. And they escalate the matter. As at some point they get enraged because of the things that Jesus is saying. Because basically what they know and understand, because they understand the symbolism of the event, which I'll explain just now, they understanding that Jesus is saying, not only I come from God, but the only way I can come from God is because I am God. Forget about Moses, I'm God, the one that sent Moses. Moses acted under my instructions. Now you wanting to make Moses the authority, but Moses got his authority from me. I'm actually the first rabbi. I am the first teacher. You've got to come to me. But they can't. He says, I, I, I've not only been schooled in heaven, but that's my origin. I didn't come from some earthly authority or some earthly place. I didn't come from Galilee. I came from heaven. And that's where I'm going. And the more he's claiming this, the more the Pharisees understand. He's saying, ego, Amy, I am who I am. I am the son of God. I am God. And so they get upset to the point where they actually get the guards together and they send them to go and erase Jesus so that they can kill him. Do you see the clock ticking? The more Jesus is in that environment, the more the clock's ticking. The time's beginning to accelerate towards his crucifixion. And the Pharisees want to make this happen. So they send the guards, the guards go, and they go and they make the mistake of allowing Jesus to speak before they arrest him. And so they listen to Jesus speak, they listen to his teaching, they hear his authority. And so they go back to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees, where's Jesus? Saying, have you heard that guy speak? There's no way we could have arrested him and brought him here. He speaks with such authority, such clarity. Have you heard him speak? And the Pharisees are like, oh, not you too. Half of you must be Galileans, you stupid people. How can you be deceived by this man? 
And so they try and arrest Jesus. And the scripture says where Jesus says, where Jesus evades the crowd and escapes because my hour has not yet come. It wasn't yet the time of his crucifixion. But before he escapes the crowd, this is the best cup of coffee you're going to ever have. I want to tell you about right now. And it so references the word Debbie shared with us. In John 7 verse 37. On the last day, the greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living waters will flow from within them or me. I included that because there's a difference of translation. Is Jesus saying that if I drink of him, then waters will flow from me? Or is he saying, I will drink from him because the living waters will flow from him? And we're not 100% clear, but it doesn't change the meaning. And let anyone drink who believes in me, as scripture has said, out of him or them will flow rivers of living water. Is Jesus saying out of him, the Messiah will flow streams of living water? Or is he saying out of them, the drink of the Messiah will flow? I think it's both. But by this he meant the Spirit, from those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Remember I said to you that the greatest symbolism of this festival was with water. Every day, a crowd would gather, and they would go to the pool of, or the spring of Gion, which was at the southern end of the city of Jerusalem. And they would take, remember those stone jars that we spoke about in in, in John 2, the wedding festival jars, those heavy jars, they would take off those jars and they would scoop this living water. Remember what made it living water? It was water from the hand of God. It wasn't brought about by human interaction. It came out of the ground. God supplied this water. Therefore, it was living water that was able to purify religiously. So they would take scoop out of this pool, this water. Then they would take those jars, those heavy jars, and they would walk all the way up that included many stairs, an incline up to the temple. And whenever you read in the Psalms and they talk about going to the temple, Israelites always went up to the temple because the temple is the ascent. So even if you lived in Galilee, which was above the Jerusalem, you didn't go down to Jerusalem, you went up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the closest we can get to heaven. So we're ascending. So they would take these pots with the water, the purified water, they would carry it up. As they were carrying off, the crowd had branches in their hands, two types of branches. On the one hand, they had the branches of the citrus tree, which was to celebrate the harvest. On the other hand, they had a branch that was used to make one of these sukkoths or these little booths, and that was to remember how God provides for them. Now, agriculturally, economically, they're saying, we are carrying the living water because we need rain to come. We're desperate for the rain. If the rain doesn't come, the harvest is going to fail. The grain will not be produced. They're also carrying it religiously because they're saying, this is the purified water. And every time they carry that water, they're saying, they're proclaiming, the Messiah is coming. And when the Messiah comes, he will be the living water that will feed us and sustain us. Like God did in the desert, the Messiah will come and he will deliver us and he will provide for us everything we need. He will be the living water, sorry. And so they would carry that, that long journey. And then when they get to the temple, oh, and by the way, as they're going, they're chanting Isaiah 12 verse 3, 
With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. They're saying the Savior is coming. We are drawing the hope of salvation. The Messiah is coming. And they're carrying this water. Then they get to the temple. And as they get at the temple, they sing Psalms 113 to 118 together, the crowd. And at a point in that, the priests would stand and they would take that jar and they would pour it on the stone of the altar. That altar that has been well used that week. Because up until, the, uh, for that whole week, the, the altar would be a place where many cattle and, and, and sheep and goats and many things would be sacrificed on that altar. So that altar filled with blood and just a place of mess surrounded by the blood that was there, they would pour this living water on it. To say the time of the sacrifice is coming to an end because the Messiah is coming and he will give us the living water. They did that every day. But on the last day, the seventh day, they did it seven times. Seven times they would scoop the water with the branches, carry it up, chant Isaiah 12, pour the water, sing the Psalms, go back and go do this. And they would walk up and down. Don't quite know exactly at which point. But at one of the times, probably possibly the last time, as they brought this water and they wanted to now pour it, there's Jesus standing next to the stone altar. And he's standing there. And as they begin to pour the water, he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within do you understand the significance of that moment? Jesus is standing and he's shouting to that whole crowd. This that you are doing is about me. I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah. You no longer have to do all these religious traditions. This which you have been doing for thousands of years to talk about the coming of the Savior is happening now, right now. In your midst, I am the Messiah. In fact, in the original, in the coded language, what he is saying, that just like water came flowing out of a rock in your time in the desert. Remember how God provided for them water out of the rock. Just like water came out of the rock and sustained you in the desert, I am the rock. And when I am struck, living waters will flow from me and will sustain you. That is the religiously charged moment that Jesus has been waiting for. He could have made that statement and he did in other contexts and it would not have anywhere close to the significance as he did when he made it in that moment. To the hearers of the day, it was nothing other than a full-blown proclamation that I am the Messiah, I am God. That's why they wanted to kill him. Because how can you claim to be God? And they go back to their three questions and they say, look, you can't be the Messiah. You don't tick the right boxes. So they refuse to believe in him. We do the same with Jesus today. We do the same thing. We hold up certain questions to Jesus and we say, unless Jesus ticks these boxes, I'm not going to believe in him. I'm not going to trust him. And we become just like that crowd. And we have all these obstacles in our way that we don't want to believe in Jesus. I want to highlight two obstacles and then I'm finishing. 
The first obstacle to believing is blindness. As the saying goes, no one is as blind as he who does not want to believe. You can go read John 7 verse 40 to 43. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? And they start arguing about Jesus' credentials. And they start holding up things that, that they say, he can't be because he wasn't born in the right place. He, he comes from Nazareth, and we know the Messiah won't come from Nazareth, so he can't be the Messiah. They find some little detail, and they, and they prepare to dismiss Jesus because he doesn't measure up to that detail. Does that sound like people you know? Have you ever tried to share your faith with somebody, and as you're talking about Jesus and what he means to you, and this amazing story, then they, they'll say, excuse me, but who did Adam and Eve's children marry when they were the only ones in the garden and... Have you had that kind of thing happen to you? Because people go, no, 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 excuse me. I need this little thing. And you know what often that little thing is? It's just an excuse. It's just a convenient little bit of doubt. That if I can cast this little bit of doubt on Jesus, I don't have to deal with him. I don't have to consider his claims. I don't have to think that he's the Messiah because he doesn't tick this box. He doesn't provide this answer. So the crowd says, no, he can't be the Messiah because we know where he came from. He came from Nazareth and surely the Messiah can't come from Nazareth. Nazareth, impossible. He cannot be the Messiah. Disqualifies him. Guess what? Are you picking up the irony here? For those of you that know the scripture, what is the irony? If they did a little bit of further investigation, guess what they would have found? Where did the Messiah come from? Not Nazareth, Bethlehem. He came from exactly the right place where he was supposed to come from to be the Messiah. See, that's what people do. They ask just enough questions to disqualify God, but not enough to believe in him because it's convenient. You see, because the moment I believe Jesus is the Messiah, everything changes. Everything changes. So people don't want to do that. No, no. He can't be the Messiah. People love blindness. I think sometimes we forget that the people of the world and many people in the world want to be blind. They don't want to see. You see, sometimes we think that if we just do a good enough job on our front line to tell people about Jesus, to live Jesus, if we're just good enough people, if we just live compelling enough lives, then, then every person will believe. I'm sorry, friends, this is not the truth. Some people, the more you try and tell them the truth, the more they run away from it because they do not want to see the truth. That doesn't, that doesn't absolve me from my responsibility to share Jesus and to live on the front line, to live a compelling life. Because even though they rejected Jesus, he still went to the cross, he still died on the cross, he still did everything he needed to do. Just like you and me, we will be misunderstood, we will be ridiculed, we will be mocked, we will be looked down upon. We will, the world will say how foolish you are because you believe in this Jesus. And some will never come around. I recently experienced it where I was in a group of people and they ridiculed me because of my faith. And then you just got to go, well, they're not rejecting me. I mean, if they were rejecting me, that's okay. Because I don't determine their eternal salvation. I don't determine whether they're going to heaven or hell. I don't determine that. Reject me all you want. It hurts me, but it doesn't change you. But if you reject Jesus, that's a different story. But people don't want to see because if I see Jesus, I no longer have permission to live the life I want to live. 
to, to be comfortable in my sin, to be comfortable in my preferences. Because Jesus challenges everything. So I don't want to see him. And that's exactly this crowd just said, I don't want to, I don't want to see him as the Messiah. So we have blindness. On the other hand, which is very close to it, is we have what I want to call religious rigidity. Religious people will, will apply some standard of rules and say, no, he doesn't fit the rules. And when I use the word religious, I don't mean Christian religious. I mean people's religion can be atheism, can be agnosticism. It can be any religion you want to describe. It's, it's that position that you take that makes life you can explain everything in life or most things in life. You see, the moment you look at Jesus, he begins to challenge your religious beliefs. And then what people do is when Jesus challenges their religious beliefs, they just do what the religious rulers down. You just buckle down and you go for it and you say, no. And on this little detail, they were prepared to dismiss Jesus and read it in John 7 verse 45. They were dismissing Jesus on this detail. He wasn't born in the right place. And again, they missed it. How quickly do we dismiss Jesus? But friends, I want to tell you that this is the truth. There's only one man that could stand by that pool and say, I am the water of life. Many can claim it, but there's only one man who can say it. You will sometimes hear some of your Muslim friends say, Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. They're just not reading the Bible. They're just not understanding what's going on. He claimed it all the time that he is God. And there's only one that can claim he is God. And because there can only be one, there can only be one path to salvation. Many roads do not lead to Rome when it comes to salvation. Salvation is only possible by the blood of Jesus. Because he is the only one that fulfilled not man's standards, but God's standards. That was pure, without sin, and yet he died for us. And you can dismiss him, and I can dismiss him, but we do so at our peril. I want to ask you today, if you dismissive of Jesus, can I ask you to have another look? To look carefully, to look more intently? Can I encourage you? Who's playing keys this morning? Sorry, I didn't notice. Nobody. Okay, Luke, you ask, thank you. That tells you I really didn't notice. You're all playing. There's wonderful people like Albert Henry Ross, who lived in 1881 till 1950. He was a lawyer and a journalist, and he was a skeptic. He didn't believe in God. He criticized the Bible, and he set out to prove that Jesus was not resurrected. In the end, he met Jesus. The more he searched, the more he found Jesus, and ultimately, he wrote not that book, but he wrote this book, Who Moved the Stones, as he became a Christian. Anthony Flew, who lived from 1923 to 2010, was a famous spokesperson for atheism before Dawkins and Hitchens. The world was shocked when he said God exists in 2004 and wrote a book about it. He based it both on empirical and philosophical evidence why Jesus is the Son of God. Alistair McGraw, 1953, he was a historian and biochemist that believed in evolution and refuted with everything in him that Jesus was God. He later became the professor of science and religion 
and became a Christian apologist. Just keep looking. You will find that Jesus wasn't born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. There's more to him than you can ever imagine. But our problem is, like Neil said last week, we try and reduce him to what fits us, what makes our world work, what makes it easier for us. And here again we see Jesus refuse to give in to the crowd. He refused to play by their game. He will be Jesus, the OG Jesus, and he will settle for nothing less. The one that says, take me or leave me. The problem is if you leave me, there's no other way to salvation. You cannot just dismiss him. Won't you stand with me? This will be the best cup of coffee you'll ever have. Not because this was a great sermon or because I did such a fantastic job or anything. But because hopefully you can see Jesus standing by that stone altar. Where all the animals have been sacrificed. And he's saying no more. The fruitlessness of these sacrifices. He reveals and he says only I can be your sacrifice. That will bear more fruit than what you can ever imagine. I am the living water. And then later Jesus said it's better for you that I go so that the Holy Spirit can come. The only way you and I can live in the power of this living water is by Jesus giving us the Holy Spirit. So that tomorrow when you're on your front line and you're and, and you hitting resistance, you can love people. Not get angry, not reject them, not get vengeful, but love them. Speak truth, challenge their lives, but in love because you have the Holy Spirit within you. So can I ask us this morning to drink the living water together? I want to apply it to three groups of people. First of all, you can be here or online with us today and you've never chosen to give your life to Jesus. You've not yet put faith in Jesus. Then today I want to ask you, consider putting faith in Jesus. He is the Messiah. The second group of people is you may have put your faith in Jesus, but your faith has dwindled. You've stepped away from Jesus and you started drinking the water of this world. And the challenge is the more you drink, the more thirsty you become. So the more you drink of the world, the more you need the world, and it never satisfies and you're getting into trouble. Your life is starting to manifest and show the poison that you've been drinking. Jesus says, come back, come to me. And then the third group of people are people that I want to say, you're drinking the water and you keep drinking it. I want to I pray for you that the living waters will flow from you to those around you. So can we pray together? Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the water of life. And we come to you humbly today. And say, Lord Jesus, we don't want to reduce you to our needs. We don't want you to be defined by our problems. We know that you look after us. We know that you care for us, that you care for our problems. But Lord, you're so much bigger than that. Forgive our blindness. Forgive our religious rigidity, Lord. Help us, Jesus. Help us, Jesus, to see you 
to recognize you. To see you standing by the altar and saying, come to me. There's a great song that I'm so enjoying lately. It's a, the song's title is More Room. And there's this line in the song that says, Shake up the ground of all my tradition. Break down the walls of all my religion. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, break down our religion. Shake our traditions so that we don't miss Jesus. Not just Jesus, our Savior, but Jesus with us today in this country at this time, in my family, in my workplace, in my front line. I don't want to miss you, Jesus. I don't want to misrepresent you. Come, Jesus. And so I pray for any person that has not yet given faith to Jesus. I pray today for the working of your spirit for them to be able to do that. Then I pray for those that have been drawn away. I pray for a restoration, a renewing, a refreshing of their faith today in Jesus' name. And I pray for those that are drinking the living water that needs to go and let that living water flow from them onto their front lines. I pray, Lord Jesus, that they will not have unrealistic expectations to think that everybody's going to accept it. That if they're just good enough, if they're just clever enough, if they just have enough faith and pray for enough miracles that everybody's going to believe, Lord, that's not going to be the case. But yet we're going to step out in faith and we're going to trust you. And when they reject us, we cry for them. And we keep on loving. We keep coming back. We keep saying, Lord, use me more. I want to bear more fruit for you, Jesus. Can, we, can I just pray? Holy Spirit, fill us in this room right now. Jesus said, and you will receive the Holy Spirit and he will empower you to be my witness. Can you receive the Holy Spirit to be the witness of Jesus? Not a perfect witness. Just the witness of your life. Come, Holy Spirit, we receive you right now. We receive your working in this place. And those that are online with us, we receive your working. Come, Holy Spirit. May we be an army that sabotages the plans of Satan. That disrupts the kingdom of darkness. Because we refuse to believe it's lies. It's half-truths. We have done the fact-checking. And we know that Jesus is the Messiah. And we will live it, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I'm going to invite you to the front for those that are here today in the room that says, I want to believe in Jesus. Won't you come? If you want somebody to pray for you as you come back to Jesus, or if you need a prayer for your front line, let somebody pray with you or any other need that you have. Our team will be ready to pray for you. Those of you that are online with us, please connect in the ways that is on the screen. May the Lord Jesus go with you. May you more and more experience Him by the Spirit, moving you to a space where He's more than you could even ask or think, not reduced to just your need and just your experience, but to the more that He has for you. May the Lord bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please come forward if you want to respond in any way, and may the Lord bless you.